You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbird styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Give a huge shout out to all of these people that are conservation heroes trying to keep the gharial alive and swimming free in India. What can they teach us? Well, and, you know, there's been challenges with reintroduction of the gharial, and that's, that's been a theme. Angie and I are chasing down some, some other people to bring on to talk about this rewilding. It, it, it is a challenge. It's a science that we're just starting to learn about in real time. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. And this is the Gariel. This is fun. This is fun, fun, fun species. This species, the Gariel, Gariel, I- I think I say Gariel, Gariel. Yeah. Let's call the whole thing up. Yeah. Now, this is why Chris and I do this podcast, mm-hmm. because it is so fun for us to spend the whole week learning about these creatures as well. There are so many fun facts that we're going to share with you today about the Gariel. We're also going to talk about an incredible conservation story. The Gariel is one of the largest crocodilians in the world, and it's one of the most critically endangered. Mm-hmm. But there's an amazing international effort to help save the species. And so that's what we definitely want to focus on today and just really give a huge shout out to all of these people that are conservation heroes trying to keep the gharial alive and swimming free in India and Nepal's freshwater rivers. There's so many conservation heroes that are out there trying to keep the gharial free and swimming in the wild of India and Nepal. And so it. It it's a really disconcerting story, but there's a lot of hope. Yeah, no, and they're they're trying to reintroduce them into Pakistan now. I was very surprised this week on what I learned about these these crocodiles. I had seen them in zoos. I I remember the San Antonio Zoo when I was bebopping there a long time ago. Seeing them, they L.A. Zoo just got them a few years ago. 
I, I, I'm trying to remember any other zoos that I've seen. The Bronx Zoo, maybe I saw them there. Probably San Diego. San Diego well. Zoo, yeah, for sure. And I just, you know, you always, re- I do read the signage and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. You know, it's a cool animal. And, you know, I always thought their snouts were interesting. Very but, slender. <laughs> yeah, unique. very unique, extremely unique animal. But I didn't know the whole backstory. And, and so, like you said, why we do this podcast this week, digging into them, looking into their story, I'm just like amazed, their conservation story, why zoos are important, because they were down to 186 adults, roughly, in the whole, in two, about 20 years ago. Yeah. In the whole world. In the whole yeah. world. Yeah. 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 That was it. That was it. They were They were just there at the edge of extinction. But because of these agencies, because of zoos, and we're going to tell this story. They are making a comeback. So it is a feel-good story. But again, there's still a lot of challenges, and we know that. But just a, a great, fun species, a lot of crazy, fun physiology. The evolution's fun. So bear with us. Their parenting yeah. is also fantastic. We'll have a lot of fun when we get to reproduction and mm-hmm. the offspring. Yes, man. I'm, I think I have more photos on this on my slides than I normally do, just because they're very photogenic. They are. They are. They're beautiful. They're beautiful reptiles. Just before we get going, I just have to give a big shout out and thank you to all the support we're getting on Patreon lately. Alexander and Masha, thank you for joining us in this past week. It means a lot to us. We did just have a live. We're going to do another live next month. So, you know, get on there. You see our faces. We talk to you, get to know where you're from, you know, share stories, request species. It's just fun. You can ask us about the podcast, any of our guests. Again, a cup of coffee a month supports us. You're supporting conservation. You know, we're giving back and you're giving back too. So thank you. And as always, it's great if you can give us a five-star review on iTunes. And also some written words are very helpful. And this week, a huge shout out to Jules121212, who loves our podcast, says that we're so informative. And they are a high school teacher that loves the information we're putting out there and for any teachers that are listening, I always encourage to use a podcast for an assignment. I have some of my students do a podcast review where I select a whole bunch of TED Talks for them to review and, and critique. And then I always have them find an animal conservation or behavior one on their own that we can talk about as well. So I think it's a fun activity in class and students really seem to enjoy doing podcast assignments these days. Yeah, no, it is. It is. It is. There's so much information out there and there's so much educational material. So, well, and it's a fun media yeah. that you can yeah. do. You can listen when you are on a walk in nature mm-hmm. or driving in the car and things like that. So, yeah. But, anyways, thank you, Jules121212, and for all of our other listeners out there as well. Yeah, our, our listeners in Uganda or Rwanda. I always love those downloads from there. I just, I was, I was telling Pip the other day, I'm like, I always imagine them. They're in their tents listening to us talk about gorillas as they get ready to go up into the rainforest and the mountains there and see the mountain gorillas. Because we always get a few down, you know, a few downloads a week from there. And I just oh it always always excites me. So thank you for for doing that. Angie, one of the I think one of the most surprising factoids about gorillas was their size. I didn't when I saw them at zoos, I never really thought they were that big. Maybe they weren't super massive adults. But they're almost as big as salties. I mean, huge. Yes, they are bigger than Nile crocodiles. I know, which are massive. Yes, that that really, that one blew me out of the water. And they're also bigger than, or longer, I should say, than American crocodiles as well. 
So I guess my question is, are only the salties bigger? Is that is that? Yeah. So uh, we'll start with the size because then Angie can kind of describe the snout, which is just so unique. It's they can get upwards of 16 to 20 feet or up to six meters in length. Females, obviously, there's some sexual dimorphism, can get up to 15 feet or four and a half meters. Now, the largest saltwater croc that's ever been measured, low long, was about 20 feet, three inches long and weighed over 2,000 pounds. Oh, yeah. Now. That's a a biggie. That's huge. Now, the the gharials weight averages you'll see out there upwards of 550 pounds. But I saw a couple of sources saying, and this is National Geographic, saying they can get up to 2,000 pounds or 900 kilograms. So I don't know if there's just some rare massive males that they, they get sometimes, but not quite as big as the saltwater crocs in Australia. But yes, for sure, larger than alligators and larger than now crocodiles. Larger than American alligators? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Larger okay. than American alligators. Yep. I think yeah. they get up to like 15 feet. I think ours, 13 to 15 feet. Yeah. I have to agree with you, Chris. I feel like the ones that I have seen under human care aren't that big. So they Mm -mm. must not been, they must have been like preteens. Because as we'll talk about later when we get to reproduction, it takes them a long time to become reproducing or sexually mature adults. And so that is also hampering their recovery efforts because you put them back in the wild and then they have to live another Mm -hmm. 10 or 15 years before they start actually reproducing. Mm-hmm. Now, describing that snout, <laughs> it's just, it, you know what, it, in thinking about it, because they're piscivores, it, it's easy to say that now. They like, they eat fish. Thinking about it, I don't know why I kept thinking of narwhals. Using oh, that that's tusk. funny. Yeah. That's, I kept thinking about it all week. Narwhals and these gharials using yeah. their snouts. Yeah. I kept thinking of the ichthyosaurus. I think that's one of the prehistoric swimming dinosaurs from my kids' books. Mm-hmm. I think they're the one with the long, pointy snout. So, but lots of things come to mind when you're looking at the gharial, in my opinion. That that snout is just something. So I'll start with that because it's definitely the biggest standout feature for the gharial is it's long. It's long and it's slender. We always talk about one of the main differences of, between crocodiles and alligators is just you can almost look at it from their head Mm -hmm. because crocodiles do have a more slender or more of like a Mm V-shaped snout where the American alligator, for for example, has more of like a U, so broader snout. But the gharial is completely different. It is like a needle. (laughs) It's very, very slender and it's very teethy. That's not an adjective, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. get that out, Chris. But there are a lot of teeth, and the gharial has between 106 and 110 really sharp razor-like teeth, and they crisscross, so it's almost like a zipper. They interlock, which we'll talk about for fishing. That's really important, so if they when they snag a fish, it can't slide out through its jaws. But when you look at the gharial straight on, at the tip of their long, very long snout, their teeth stick out and look like they, they almost look like they need to go to the dentist. So they mm-hmm. kind of jut out each and every mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And I love the teeth that stick out a little bit in the front of their snout, almost like they need to go to the dentist or something. But what really was striking to me this week, and I know you and I talked about this before the pod started, was learning about how they got their name, the mm-hmm. gara. And 
what that is, is at the end of this long needle-like snout, for the males, as they start to become sexually mature in age, they will grow this bump on the end of their snout, making it even more attractive, if you ask me. (laughs) And it's called agara because it's shaped like a a clay pottery bowl. In this earthen pot, it's called agara uh, in the native language, which hence the name garial comes from. And the reason it looks like a clay pot is because it's very big and very bulbous And the bump doesn't have any cartilage or bone in it, but it is very loud. And we'll talk about how the males use this bump that has some hollow chambers in it to produce sounds during breeding season to help with their mating rituals. Mm -hmm. So only the males have this bump and only the older males have it, but it really is striking on the end of their snout, on the end of this very long needle-like snout. And so... Magariel's color is going to vary depending on exactly where they live, but individuals can be olive in color, light or dark, tan, gray, even have some blackish to them. But all adults will be white or yellowish white underneath, so they have a little bit of that counter shading. And they do change colors too as they age a little bit. In fact, as the gariel ages, they actually get darker in color and they start getting some bands and speckles on their on their skin, to which some of the photos showed really beautiful like black specks on the head and snout of the gariels. So beautiful colors and a, different depending on where they live. And then similar to other crocodilians, they have massive web feet which helps them swim in the water. And they are actually the best swimming gharial. We'll talk about that. They spend the most time in water compared to all the other crocodilian species. And their scales are slightly different too because they're more smooth, which is quite different than the typical crocodiles and alligators we talk about on this podcast. So very unique, especially with that snout and the gara on the end of the snout. Oh, yeah. They're just charismatic. I mean, they're good-looking reptiles like they're just oh yeah that's why i have so many yeah. photos i yeah. just have slides and slides it's a photos so i'm like oh i like that one. Ooh, i like that one <laughs> but i will say they are slightly different greens or mm-hmm. olives or browns in color depending on which photo i was looking at so yeah yeah but yeah. that snout is always the same that's for sure yes for sure and i mean you're talking historically the range was massive in a lot of these r- river systems in south asia so going from India, Nepal, Bhutan, Bangladesh, over into Myanmar, they had a massive range. But today, very fragmented in Nepal and northern India, where they've been reintroducing them or, or really trying to, to save them. And that's, again, like why I applaud Nepal. Talking to Sonam a few weeks ago with the red pandas. The things they're doing for all of the, the, you know, the snow leopard, tigers, you know, hats off to Nepal fighting to save their, their native species and India too, where now they recognize, okay, here's where they're at and we're going to try to expand it to where now it, it was like, I, I think India, Pakistan was part of India way back in the day. 
so they want to reintroduce them and they haven't been there in over 40 or 50 years so but again today in the wild with the few hundred that are out there you're only going to find them in nepal or northern india and they're pretty like fragmented subpopulations too, right? Very much, very much mm-hmm. with very low numbers and some, you know, in the, in the 10s and 20s and 30s or 50, up to 50s in, in another part of there. So well, we're going to talk about some of the reintroductions that they're doing. But talking about the, the gharial, I mean, this is an apex predator. Being a crocodilian, and, and I'll talk about this, they can be in brackish water or even salt water because crocodiles, unlike alligators do have salt glands on their tongues, but the gharials are going to be mainly in all in freshwater. So there, there is some fragmented populations near the coast of India, but you're not going to find them there. Like you're going to find them in freshwater. That's where they, they want to be. Now we're talking about an apex predator in these river systems of fish. So when you have a ecosystem that's thriving and healthy, these ones are these these animals are critical. They're absolutely critical to keeping it healthy. Oh, absolutely! I found a really cool study out of Functional Ecology by Dr. Phoebe Griffith and their colleagues entitled "Using Functional Traits to Identify Conservation Priorities for the World's Crocodilians." And I'll talk a little bit more about that specifics of the paper in a second. But one thing that the paper points out is just how important gharials are for their native habitats and their ecosystems. When the researchers were talking to local fishing communities living in areas where gharial populations have increased due to all the rewilding and the efforts to enhance their numbers, there are actually reports of improved fish stocks for the local fishermen because the gharials prey on the big fish that would otherwise feed on their preferred catch species. Mm-hmm. So it's this whole balance of the ecosystem by keeping the natural apex predators there, not only helping balance the ecosystem, but also helping humans and the local fishermen catch the fish that they are able to and would normally catch and keep those populations healthy as well. So that's from the human side, of course, and when you're looking at like economic impacts to humans. But just in general, the ecosystem role is just that apex predator and keeping the river systems in balance. Because once again, if we think of the whole food chain, the gharials eat the bigger fish, the bigger fish eat the smaller fish, the smaller fish eats probably some of the invertebrates or mm-hmm. microscopic species that are, then those are feeding on the plants. And I mean, it's just the whole, the whole cascade can get out of whack when you don't have an apex predator that evolved to live there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh yeah. I mean, I just, oh, a lot of things came up with me that we were talking about over, over the years in the podcast. And then I remember, I can't remember what, what, what podcast it was. Maybe it was the tiger episode itself, but how tigers were keeping animals a, a, away from farmers' crops, you know, mm-hmm. and they weren't, they, they, they might take a goat or something here and there every now and then, but they kept away smaller predators like the leopards and the wild dogs that would take out. And this is in India, I think. What are the, the wild dogs that you want to cover at some point? The, uh, the doles. The doles. 
they would keep them away so the livestock were doing I'm tr- better. I'm trying, everyone. I'm trying to get doles. We'll uh, get there. We'll get there. We're going we're gonna to do doles it's soon. All, it's on I the list. I always push it. Yeah. yeah, it's on the list. I but, love my, my canids. But we know these apex predators are critical to, to maintaining health of any ecosystem. Oh, yeah, Chris. And what this study found in functional ecology that I mentioned earlier, when we think of critically endangered crocodilians, of course, the gharial pops out and the Chinese alligator. We need to cover those guys as well. They're in critical need of our conservation. But Griffith and her colleagues looked at 15 of the 28 crocodilian species, and they're threatened with extinction. And with these being apex predators, we need to keep our eye on the Orinoco crocodile, the Cuban crocodile, Mm -hmm. the Philippine crocodile, and the Siamese crocodile. And But of all of those, Griffith and her colleagues, found the team did this whole modeling where they looked at functional diversity scores with all these threatened species of crocodiles. And what they did find was that the gharial was the most functionally distinct species. Mm -hmm. And they had the most unusual ecological role or niche, which would mean the loss of the species of the gharial would mean there's nothing else like them in the world today to fill that niche or that role. Which is just a really good reason to care about a gharial besides this adorable long snout <laughs> and the big bump on the male's nose, which you're like, that's different, but I love it. Uh, is that they're just, uh, they are critical to their ecosystems where they live. Well, yeah, and we know... There are river ecosystems around the world are in trouble. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to go into this a little bit and, and talk about some of the conservation work that's going on around the gharials. It's 436 we know of in the wild in 1997, down to 182 in 2006. And the World Wildlife Fund had a, a long list of, you know, the impacts. Obviously, fishing is a big one. You know, the rivers are overfished. We're seeing this around the world. But damming? We, we know that has having damming up rivers, nets, so gharials get tangled in the nets with their rostrums. Fishermen will kill or cut the rostrums off of the gharials that get entangled in nets. The mining that's going on, the eggs are harvested. I was reading harvested. a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Removing the sand from the riverbanks that the gharials need to get out and sun themselves is all of these have come together to drive this species, which numbered in the tens of thousands at some point, if not hundreds of thousands in all these river systems, down to 182. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's, it, it's, not, it's not good, you know? And this is why another species that we cover showing this biodiversity crisis we find ourselves in 2023, you know, in the last four or five years we've been doing the podcast. Now, The good news, okay, is there is a lot of reintroduction programs ongoing. Yes, very good news. Yeah, yeah. And and this is, again, why zoos matter. You know, this is why Angie and I, again, AZA, all these other zoos should pay us. They don't. I, I have no money invested with zoos or propping up zoos. I just, from a scientist standpoint, from somebody that's passionate about conservation, has dedicated their lives to helping conservation, researching conservation. I see what zoos do. Now, these are accredited zoos. These are zoos. There's some good sanctuaries out there too, but I'm just saying zoos that are the Los Angeles Zoo, 
the Bronx Zoo, San Diego Zoo, Dallas Zoo. Cincinnati, Lincoln Park. I mean, there's a lot of them in the States. We're very lucky. Yes, yes. It's they all have a critical mission in protecting these species. And I should say, too, that there is a world accreditation for zoos, too, as well, which I'm not as educated on. So we should probably get someone on here that is from WAZA, the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums, I believe to describe a little bit more of the rigor that goes into their accreditation process as well. So yeah, 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 down here in New Zealand. Yeah. Down here in New Mm -hmm, Zealand. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, So, but yeah, from working at a zoo and going through the accreditation process to make sure that we had all of our bells and whistles from animal care to diets, to veterinarian, to enrichment, to habitat, to companionship with the species, to training program. I mean, that was just from the animal care part, but then there's, of course, the conservation. and There's so many levels for the accreditation that a zoo has to go through. It's not just based on one or two things. And so I think we have a podcast about that some, mm-hmm. some, somewhere sometime. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know do. which number, but that's a different podcast for a different day. But in general, yes, they do a lot of, a lot of really good work for the animals in their care, of mm-hmm. course. That's mm-hmm. first and foremost but then also donating time and energy to conservation issues, of course, in the wild and helping support a lot of those programs. And then, as Chris mentioned, some of these restocking, rewilding species survival programs that are ongoing at accredited zoos are are the reason why we have the black-footed ferret and the California condor. And And as we're learning- the bison. I mean, and the the turkey. Mm -hmm. The turkey was almost extinct. Yeah. yeah, and as we're learning the gharial, right? Yeah, and the gharial. That's where, again, here's another species. I had no idea uh, the crisis they were in. And today, their population in the wild is up over 800. Now, there are some major challenges, which I'll, I'll address here in a second. But gharials from the Prague Zoo, the Berlin Zoo, and again, zoos in the States are harboring and, and protecting these animals keeping the population genetically diverse. So individuals, select individuals can be taken and re-put back in the wild. We're going to try to get a Sumatran rhino expert on, and that brings me back to Harrapin. He was born in the Cincinnati Zoo, and you and I were very fortunate to be able to see him up close and personal before he was shipped off to Sumatra, where now he was helping save his, his species. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's tons of these examples on where zoos uh, have, have are saving species, right? And they're teaching us how to care for these animals better, how to medically treat them better, how to breed them better, so we can save them. So keep that in mind, yeah. When you when you visit a zoo and you walk through there and see, wow, you know, a gharial realizing that animal is 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 priceless for that species. Yes. And the animal probably is part of a breeding program and some of their offspring or their offspring have a chance of going back into the wild. And, and so it is, it is important to think about and to educate yourself about the work that is going on behind the scenes, both at accredited zoos internationally. I know Zoo Berlin was mentioned a lot Mm -hmm. with the gharials. Also, too, there are several nonprofits will highlight some work that's being done with the Garials today as well. So it's just really hopeful to me to know that all these international people that just love this creature so much 
stopped it from going extinct several years ago and are fighting for it. And yeah. that's that gives me hope. I should give you hope if you're listening to this podcast and get you excited that there are people out there fighting for a lot of these creatures. Not all creatures, but a lot mm-hmm. of these creatures. Well, and, you know, there's been challenges with the reintroduction of the Gariol, and that's that's been a theme. Angie and I are chasing down some some other people to bring on to talk about this rewilding. It, it, it is a challenge. It's a science that we're just starting to learn about in right. real time. Yeah. So yeah. there are going to be some hiccups, and, and that's another reason Chris and I always push science first, because data is really important to help learn from our mistakes or look at trends, analyze the data, what works, what doesn't work. And 20 or 30 years ago, reintroduction wasn't a thing. No, well, now, with, yeah, with the Gario, they were just putting them out there. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, here, we've got 40. Let's just dump them in this river and let's see what happens. And they would come back and there would be two left or three left or four left or one left. And they started doing this in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And they realized it just putting them back in the rivers was not going to work. So going back, if you really want to learn more about like what's going on, what's working today, some of these Whitley Award winners that we've had on, like Sonom and some of the others, and, and some of the other experts we're bringing in, talk about conservation with the locals, getting the locals involved, invested, like we're learning in Nepal and other places in Africa. When they're invested in the animals, the animals are doing well. So they've learned this with the Gariol that just putting them there was not going to, they were still were going to face all the issues. They were still getting poached, still tangled in the nets. Now they're getting the locals involved to where now we have over 800 in the wild and there's plans for more re- reintroductions. So just leaving it there. I don't need to talk about it anymore because we, we've covered it before. We're going to cover it again in the future. But conservation starts locally in your own backyards. And when we do that, these wild species thrive. Absolutely. Very well said. Okay. Well, I have, I have a fun, fun species I'm going to talk about in evolution. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey there, fellow super moms. This is Angie from All Creatures Podcast. Are you juggling a million things at once like me? Between work and podcast deadlines, after school sports, taking care of the kids, and of course, all of our pets, finding time to cook nutritious lunches and dinners can feel like an impossible mission in my house. But guess what? I've found the ultimate lifesaver, Factor. Picture this, delicious chef-crafted meals delivered right to your doorstep, ready to heat and eat whenever you need them. No more stressing about what to cook or spending hours in the kitchen. With over 35 mouth-watering options each week, including keto, calorie-smart, vegan, and more, Factor has something for everyone in the family. My husband and I are loving the vegan options, and we are also enjoying their amazing add-ons, from snacks to yummy smoothies. Factor isn't just convenient, it's budget-friendly too. So say goodbye to expensive takeout. Because Factor meals are dietitian approved and cost less than dining out. Plus, you can customize your plan to fit your busy schedule and pause or reschedule deliveries whenever you need to. And the best part? Zero prep, zero mess. 
Just pop a meal in the microwave and boom, lunch or dinner is served. So choose Factor because every super mom like you deserves a break from meal planning without compromising taste and health. And we all need more quality time with the creatures we love. Head to factormeals.com slash creatures50 and use code creatures50 to get 50% off. That's code creatures50 at factormeals.com slash creatures50 to get 50% off. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. All right, welcome back. All right, evolution. We've done, you know, crocodiles and alligators. We do have to do the Nile crocodile, but we'll we'll kick that can down the road. Uh, Reptiles, 11,700 species now. So over 100 species a year are being discovered in reptiles, I think, right now or, or being classified really crazy a lot so a lot of uh rep new new reptiles are being discovered all the time the order for the gharial is the crocodilia now this is where it gets kind of fun because there's a a, a subgrouping of alligator a and then the longer rostrous which is new this is in the last five six years these classifications have come come about now the alligator a day are your caimans and alligators. So we do have to talk about like the black caiman in South America or something like that in the future. And then the the longer rostres, so it's, it sounds long rostrum. Think about that's mm-hmm. kind of what you're thinking of, is the gavialis, which is the gharials, and the crocodiles. Okay, so those are all of our crocodile species that are in South Florida and some in South America, then obviously here in Australia or near me, Australia, and then obviously in Africa, in parts of Asia. Now, for the gharial, the family is Galvalidae. There's only two. There's the gharial and then the false gharial. Who knew? I didn't yeah. know about the false gharial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is also known as the, the Sunda or Malayan gar- gharial. Mm-hmm. These are a little bit smaller, but they're in Malaysia, Borneo, Java, and Sumatra. Yes, so. and the snout is not as... Slender and long. Yeah, as the, the true gharial that we're covering today. Now, the genus is Gavialis. It's the only species. And Gavialis gangecticus is the scientific name. Now, what's fun about reptiles is it just, it, we're reptiles. We have a reptilian brain. This is, we all came from reptiles. Dinosaurs came from reptiles. And the first reptiles date back to 315 million years ago. Right, they're older than the dinosaurs. I just love that fact. I do. I again, I didn't know that until I really dorked out in this podcast. So reptiles were there first, and then out came mammals and dinosaurs from that. I mean, amphibians are older by about sixty million years, but reptiles first emerged out of the water 
with that. Now, I love talking about this. Dinosaurs are very different from reptiles. Through classification, dinosaurs, I think I explained this in a podcast before, dinosaurs were classified as reptilian. I think that's changing now. They're kind of separating them out because we realize dinosaurs are not reptiles, even though in popular culture and film, they look like reptiles. They're not. Reptiles are different. Dinosaurs stand up on their legs. Their bodies are positioned different while reptiles' legs stick out. Dinosaurs can run faster where reptiles run like the kind of that side to side if you see a lizard running motion. Mm -hmm. Dinosaurs are thought to be warm-blooded. Some are thought to have feathers. Dinosaurs gave rise to birds. So dinosaurs are definitely not reptiles, right? So we've talked about that. Now, the first reptile that came out 300 plus million years ago was just a small lizard about 10 inches long. Crocodiles or crocodilians don't emerge on the scene until about 245 million years ago. Okay, so they, when dinosaurs are emerging, so are crocodiles, right? They survived the fourth mass extinction 200 million years ago. You know, they somehow did, but they lived side by side, these ancient crocodiles with dinosaurs, okay, in and out of the water. Now, to get to gharials, there was a dinosaur called Thracosaurs that looked, lived exactly like a gharial. But it should be the reverse. The gharials actually looked and lived like Thracosaurs. Boom. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the Thracosaurs were living in the Cretaceous period when we had the fifth mass extinction, when dinosaurs went extinct. They're, they got up towards a 26 feet long. Little bit long, a little bit longer or bigger than gharials. But gharials don't emerge until about 40 million years ago. So they aren't related. They just looked a lot alike, same long rostrums, you know, crocodilian looking, but one was a dinosaur. So walked up a little bit differently. And one's a gharial, that's a reptile. So they, they are not related at all. That's so interesting. They do look a lot alike. I just uh, pulled up an image. Yeah, yeah. Now, the modern-day gharials and the false gharials diverged about 40 million years ago from a common ancestor. Uh, today's gharials emerged in India-Pakistan region about 20 million years ago, and, and not much has changed since. So millions of years old, the species very ancient. I'm sure there's been some some changes here and there, but generally the same. Yeah. Well, do you think about another reason to why care? So ancient. And and then having that incredible ecological niche that only mm-hmm. they hold, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. fascinating. Well, yeah, they are. They're they're just they're, they're, I love them. They're great. They're a great species, and I'm so glad we're we're talking about them today. Now, what's interesting about gharials? I don't know if we know as much, like say we know with alligators and others. I mean, when I was looking at age ranges, I saw as low as thirty. Average, maybe 60. Some people in India or fishermen who've been around think they can live up to be 100 years old. I think it's somewhere in the middle, 50, 60 years old. Uh, yeah. Well, I found the, the oldest one living under human care was estimated to be about 29 years old, mm-hmm. which seems pretty young compared to other crocodile species. 
So, yeah, I, I mean, it, it just goes to show we still have a lot to learn about them. Right. And so I'm with you, Chris, on that one. I, I it's I think there's a range. Yeah. So probably similar to, to other crocodilian species. Now, again, being a reptile, just as a reminder, to, or if you have a new listener listening, cold-blooded, that doesn't mean their blood is cold. Like, you know, you go get a cold drink of water. Their blood isn't cold like that. It just means it's colder than us, and they, they cannot regulate their body temperature like an endotherm, like us. They're ectotherms, meaning they need external heat to warm up their bodies to help their metabolisms. Reptiles are have very slow metabolisms, and they need to warm themselves up to, to get their blood warm, those enzymes working, to digest food. So that's why you see a lot of times a reptile, a lizard, an alligator, a gharial basking out in the sun. Gharials, those sandbanks are so critical for them to come up. They're, they're, they're very gangly on the, on the ground. They, they don't move well on, on <laughs> land. I was going to talk about yeah. that behavior. Yeah, yeah. They don't, they're not pretty to watch walk. It's, it's very kind of pull and slide-like motion because they don't, they don't get upright like you're mentioning but they need to get that sunlight to warm them Absolutely. up. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So that's mm-hmm. what we mean when they're, when they're cold-blooded. Now, before we get to the teeth here real quick, it, the eyes are really cool. Angie, I think you've talked about this. The tapetum lucidum, mm-hmm. which is good for night vision. Right? Yeah. It's a reflective layer behind the eye. And then the gharials also have what's known as the nictating membrane. It's like a clear membrane-like tissue that protects the eye while underwater, also known as goggles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> the original goggle, right? Biological goggles, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, biological goggle. There I you like go. that. There you go. There yeah, you go. good one, Chris. Now, what's cool about tape to lucidum is I've seen photos, and I've even at night, I've seen glowing eyes in the water in Florida. Mm-hmm. And gators have it. They have it. So that causes them, when light, shown on them it, it shines back right so it reflects mm-hmm. yeah, yeah very reflective yeah 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 so they have like really, cat eyes yeah really 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 good night vision and then as angie already talked about up to 110 razor sharp interlocking teeth to help catch those fish like i said i i and maybe it's because i saw a, a narwhal video a couple months ago or a video where they were saying they absolutely know they watched narwhal slapping fish with their tusks to knock the fish out and then eat them. But I just see the gharial with that long snout slashing through the water and just getting a a quick bite of a fish with those razor sharp teeth. They do. Yeah. You nailed it. They will move their heads really quickly from side to side to just, just snatch the fish. And then it's really cool. They actually don't chew it. They have all of those teeth, but the teeth almost just act like a zipper to keep the fish in the long snout. And then they swallow the fish whole. Yeah, so <laughs> really quick motion. And and yeah, the the poor fish never saw saw that coming, that's for sure. Yeah, because I guess it's it's the long narrow sound. It's just low resistance of water, so they can go smash it around and yeah, go, slice right through it. it. Boom, boom, yeah. boom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now, like we said, uh, they're piscivores, adults almost exclusively on fish. Now the younger ones. It might eat some insects or some smaller prey, amphibians, things like that, maybe small lizards, whatever they can catch because they're not quite ready to, to catch fish. But the adults, I mean, that's it. They eat fish. Yeah. And they help aid in their hunting 
the gharials, like all other crocodiles, have an integumentary sense organ, or integumentary is just a fancy word for the skin system. And what it is, is there's these, they have tiny pits within the scales that cover their body. And the nerves that are within these pits within their skin help pick up vibrations within the water to notice pressure changes and subtle vibrations to help them search for prey. So that aids in their hunting ability. And then also to help the gharials when hunting, they can pick up on lower frequencies. And also when they're underwater, they can actually close their ear canal. So there's some really unique aquatic adaptations that they've evolved over the millennia, millions of years, as Chris and I were talking about. Well, and and I, I'm glad you bring that up because I'm thinking of, you know, them seeing, sensing the behaviors that they do. So what are like, you know, are, are they ambush predators with fish? Or are, they, are they actively hunting? What are they doing? All of them, Chris. I think mm-hmm. that's what makes them so successful and probably why they've been able to be around for so long, except for, of course, us humans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that we already talked about a little bit the hunting strategy, which is called rapid strike, because they have that thin snout and razor sharp teeth. They basically have a little bit lower resistance as they move their snout through the water and then they just do a quick snap. The other type of hunting that the gharial will do is the sit and wait. And mm. they just float completely submerged underwater and act like a log or just not alive. And so fish will swim right past them and then wha-bam. The other one is a little bit more active and it basically does involve using those pit organs, the integumentary system that I was talking about, the sensory organs on their scales to feel the vibrations and slowly basically feel their way around and through the water in search of prey. So that might be a type of hunting for maybe fish that don't swim as fast if they are eating some invertebrates or things like that. So several strategies, just a fascinating, successful apex predator, as you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, they've been around for millions of years <laughs> they have, and they haven't changed. Like these it, it, crocodiles, these these ancient creatures that, that, that just they've had no need to adapt. You know, it's been very successful. So obviously like that. Now, leading into other behaviors, I'm just curious, you know, what you found on them and what we actually know about that. Yes. Well, we need to know more. And there are like, there are conservationists and researchers out there trying to learn more about, especially the gharials that they are rewilding, uh, more about their behavior. But what is currently known is that, as I mentioned earlier, the gharial spends the most time in the water out of any other crocodilian species. And of course, they're fantastic swimmers, which is how they do all this fish hunting. When the gharial is on land, it's pretty inefficient. As Chris mentioned earlier, those leg muscles aren't very strong and they can't actually lift their bodies up off the ground Mm. to run. Whereas American alligators and I think Nile crocodiles, I mean, they can move when they need to. The gharial actually kind of pushes and pulls and slides their belly across the sand. It almost reminded me of a penguin. Like, yeah, 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 yeah kind of silly looking. Waddle, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, but the gharial will spend lots of time basking in the sun, uh, usually more in the winter because it's colder out than in the summer. 
and they do like to use the same basking spot and and they will stick very close to the water. So as we talked about earlier, they do need to have those pull out, haul out areas of sand along the river shores to do this. Otherwise, they're in trouble. And when an, a gharial is hauled out or out sunning itself, you'll often see the gharial exhibiting the gape behavior, which is very f- common in other crocodilian species. But the reason the gharials will do this gaping behavior where their mouth is opened and their head is at about a 20 degree angle and they'll hold it open for about 10 to 20 minutes at, t- at a time, they're actually trying to dissipate excess heat. So they're sunning because they need to sun, as Chris mentioned, to help rev up their metabolism and for things like that. But in the same instance, they need to be able to regulate so they don't overheat. And that is one of the gaping is a mechanism that they'll do to not overheat while they are sunning. And often you'll see gharials together, especially if they're sunning sometimes. But typically they are a solitary creature Unless it's breeding season, then they definitely tolerate each other's presence much more. Well, and then talking about the gara, one of the things mentioned in the beginning is some of the courtship displays. So what is with that? Like, you know, what are some of the, the things, the behaviors? <laughs> I, we, we I, yeah. yeah. Oh, Chris, I actually titled my slide, my slide Snout Booper. Because <laughs> yep, yep. I would never, ever boop or bop a snout of a of a gharial or any wild animal for that matter but it is cute my two-year-old my almost two-year-old will is doing it at home so he'll go up to rainbow and just he'll touch his take his pointer finger and just touch her gently on the nose and say boop (laughs) boop (laughs) and so because of that gara on the end of the gharial's snout it is very much something that if I was allowed and lived in a different life and it was totally legal, I would, and I'd probably lose my finger, so I wouldn't do it. But mm-hmm. it's it'd be fun to boop because the males develop this gara, which is this hollow, bulbous, not even super attractive protuberance at the tip of their snout or their nose. And that's why it's they get their name gariel because it's this, it resembles this earthen pot called gara in the native language. So the reason the male gharial has this gara at the end of their snout, which is once again, not made of bone or cartilage, but is very well formed, if, if I'm describing that right, it, it's not for me to boop. It actually has a really important part for the reproductive biology. Gara functions both as a visual stimulus for the females. They like a big old schnoz to boop themselves. <laughs> <It's a boop. laughs> mm-hmm. So very, it's very visually attractive to a female. And it also helps produce bubbles and sounds during courtship rituals. So when the males are partially submerged in water, they can use this gara as a hollow bubble system to produce bubbles that the females are attracted to. And the male gharials can produce a loud buzzing sound. And researchers think that it's because of this hollow chamber in their gara to help make this buzzing noise that can make males transmit almost like a hissing buzz-like sound Hmm. that can be heard 75 meters or 246 feet away. So it can really get the female's attention. And 
The males also use their gara to make unique popping noises. And the pop sound is very loud, very audible, and it can be heard over 500 meters away. Wow. So that can be used to attract females and also as a territorial sign for other males as well. So it is a very important feature for the males to help communicate all the things they need to during the breeding season. So yes, just lots, lots of fun facts about the gara. It's not just, it's not just for booping. In fact, you should never boop it. Don't boop it. (laughs) I do not endorse booping animal noses unless it is your own dog. Yeah. And good luck trying to boop your cat's nose because, you know, cats. They'll boop you back. <laughs> they'll bite you. Yes, they'll yeah. boop you back. Yeah. 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 Oh. Yeah, admire gharials from a distance. But, okay, all of that mm-hmm. being said, what happens when the female goes, ooh, such a nice nose. Yeah. Let's talk. Ah. So what happens, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, female gharials be interested in males during mating season, which lasts about two months out of the year. So depending on where the species are, the breeding season will last usually from November to February during the dry season or the, at the end of the cold season. And for their courtship, oh my gosh, I had so mm-hmm. much fun with this this week. So once again, as we mentioned, these gharials just keep blowing me out of the water. They are so fascinating. And their courtship is actually perfect, I think, for Valentine's Day, which is happening very soon here in North Mm -hmm. America, or for those of you that uh, celebrate, because for gharial courtship, when the male makes his bubbles and his hissing sound, I think you should just hit smooth jazz on your record player or whatever whatever music you're using, because it is fascinating. So... After the male gharial has made all of his sounds and attracted the female, he may use his jaw to water slap and she'll come over and they'll rub snouts, which is just precious. And this is when I can hear the smooth jazz playing in the background. And then the male will follow behind the female into, into and around his territory. And once the female seems very relaxed and shows signs that she is interested in him and his she's like she likes what she's seeing the bubbles and the and the hissing and the vocalized the little vo- subtle vocalizations she'll then raise her head skyward to signal she's ready and the male will climb on top and then they slowly submerge below the river hmm. and they stay submerged for up to 30 minutes copulating and then you hit end on the smooth jazz <laughs> music yeah, 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 <laughs> and yeah. scene. Yeah. So I don't know. For me, it's just very visual with all, all of that, all of that courtship going on. And then they just slowly sink below the water. <laughs> I can just and, imagine that picture. Yeah, yeah. And it is important, all jokes aside, to note that uh, the gharial fertilization will be internal. And that the female gharial will actually start to then congregate with other female gharials to dig nests in the spring. And then the female gharial will lay about 20 to 95 eggs, depending on the individual and her age. And she'll locate a sandy bank, right? Super important where she'll dig the nest. And her incubation season happens in the late dry season around March through May. 
And the hole that the female gharial digs is about 50 centimeters deep, so not super deep, and really close to the water, about three to five meters from the water. Once again, it's important they have these sandy beaches on the sides of the rivers. And she'll usually do all this at nighttime. And from there, she'll proceed back into the water and leave her eggs in the sand to incubate. The gharial's egg is the biggest egg of all crocodilians, which isn't super surprising because, mm. well, gharials are super big. But it's going to be about the size of a baseball. Oh, and wow. yeah, and weigh anywhere from 100 to 156 grams. So that's a good sized egg. The incubation will occur for about 60 to 80 days after she lays them. The female will visit her eggs sometimes at the nighttime, but in general, she remains in the water doing her, her hunting and then, of course, basking when she's not looking over her eggs. And of course, Chris, it's always important to mention whenever we talk about a reptile that we do know that sex of the offspring is determined by egg temperature during mm -hmm. the early to middle part of when those eggs are incubated. So what happens is lower incubation temperatures will tend to swing in favor towards the production of females, where higher incubation temperatures of reptiles, or crocodilians definitely, will start to favor the production of males. Researchers still don't know a lot about this gender selection based on temperature, except for that it is worrisome for the future with climate change. So we'll maybe try to get an expert on here to talk more about what's happening with that. Not that these poor reptiles don't have enough problems already, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but that is something to be mindful of. But when the females are nesting and uh, visiting their eggs that are incubating, they will be pretty territorial, but they tolerate other females on the same beach. And I watched a video on what happens during hatching. And all I can say is we'll put, we'll put it on our show notes because the Indian gharial hatching is just about as precious as it gets for me. Mm. Because when the young are starting to hatch out of their eggs, they will start making a grunting noise that's not super loud, but loud enough to be heard by the mom. And gharial mothers are ex excellent mothers. And the minute they hear these sounds that their babies are hatching, they rush up. Well, as far as fast as they can, since they don't really run on land, yeah, <laughs> but they, yeah. <laughs> they, they slide on their bellies as quick yeah, as they yeah. can yeah. to get to their nest. And then the females actually help excavate the nest during hatching. So they will dig and help dig the young out to get them out all safely, which is just so fascinating and such incredible maternal instinct. Mm-hmm. Now, different to other crocodilians uh, that will sometimes help carry their offspring to the water in their mouths, probably because that snout is like a chainsaw, it's just <laughs> super long, gharial moms do not carry their babies uh, to the water. But luckily, the gharial offspring, these babies, have enough instinct to be able to know which direction to head towards the uh, river. So they walk there on their own. And then... As far as parenting goes, once again, the Gario mom is a fantastic mom. Mother's Day is not too far around the corner. She would get one of my top votes. 
And because what she'll do is she will protect her hatchlings for a while after they are born, usually until the rain starts to come in and at which point the, the water levels rise and then the young will disperse after that. So researchers don't really know exactly how long. There's not like a specific date that the mom will uh, protect them, but she is a great protector. She will let the offspring ride on her head, which I think I have about 17 of those pictures in my <laughs> in my <laughs> garials, show notes yeah. this week because it's just so darling with all the gharials on her head and then on her long snout while she's floating in the water and then a little bit on her back. It's just I mean, what a good mom, right? Mm -hmm. And the other thing that's cool is I have to give the dad, the male gharial, a shout out because the males are allowed to be nearby, but he typically doesn't actively help the young or protect them. But there are pictures, and I have some on my slides, of young gharials riding on the heads and the backs of male gharials. And re researchers think that it might be dad that they're riding on, but it might actually just be another male that's mm -hmm. that like tolerates the other <laughs> offspring, which yeah. is just, I mean, that's it's one thing to like let your own kids like like for instance, I would never give a piggyback to a kid that was not my own, <laughs> unless it was like a real emergency because yeah. it's hard to do that. They're like hands are on your head and like grabbing you and. I'll do it for my own kids because, well, I love them and I'm their mom. But I don't know if I would do that for other kids. And so here we here we have it. Male gharials will sometimes do that for their own offspring, but they will also do it for other offspring that are not, you know, not specifically their own. So pretty cool stuff. Researchers don't fully understand it and why, why these behaviors are exhibited sometimes and why they're not. But yeah, I mean, dad will step up too. And there has been evidence that if there is imminent danger, that the the male or the dad will try to do his best to to protect the entire group. Yeah. So yeah. pretty cool. I mean, really, really fascinating crocodilian behavior that I would love to be on the banks of the sandy shores learning more about. That's for sure, especially during hatching season because I just think it's darling. Well, we need we need more of them. And just to go back to the eggs when you were talking about that, it, I remember reading. Part of the conservation strategy was to go and dig up the eggs, right? And then take them back and hatch them in a hatchery, you know, let them grow up a little bit and then reintroduce them. They're rethinking that strategy now. They're thinking it's best to let nature take its course and mm -hmm. then again, protect that area, get the locals involved. So they've learned that maybe stealing the eggs to, you know, hatch them isn't the best strategy. Because the moms are are good and and they need those instincts, right? They need or not those instincts. They need those experiences, and then the young ones need those experiences. So they're good moms, so on and so forth. Yeah, because the other thing too that's been noted is multiple mothers will sometimes take turns taking care of other youngsters, like almost a babysitter. Which FYI, could use one of those right now. Mm -hmm, Anybody listening? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, Chris, you bring up a really good point that if they're not if they're not ever taught or they don't get to experience that mm. behavior because their eggs are being gone or taken from the nest then what happens the next year and the next year after that so mm -hmm. yeah it's it's just fascinating and i and i think we're learning more about better ways to protect them and obviously like you said protect the protect the waterways in which they inhabit and regardless of how these hatchlings are being protected 
or rewild is that they need to be protected for a long time because the sexual maturity for gharials is old. Mm -hmm. So for females, Mm -hmm. a female gharial will not be ready to reproduce until she's at least eight years old or three meters in length. And for males, much later, males don't become sexually active or mature until they are about 15 years of age or four meters in length. And that's Around that time is when the male starts to develop his gara on his snout that's super important for all these courtship and breeding behaviors. So if they're not even making it to that age, they're not reproducing. Nope. So we just have to make sure we're staying on top of the threats of habitat destruction, pollution, of course, oh my goodness, and uh, gillnet fishing and getting the locals involved, as you mentioned. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. I mean, again... A few over 800 in the wild now, still critically endangered species. So, the, the but the good news is, again, there's many multiple agencies uh, coming to India, Nepal, Pakistan now to reintroduce them to protect these animals. So there's a lot of great work going there and one that we might cover this week. Yes, Chris. So I want to give a big shout out this week to the Gariel Ecology Project. They can be found on Facebook at the Gariel Ecology Project and also on Instagram. The Gariel Ecology Project is exactly what it sounds like, learning more about the ecology of the gharials in order to help save this critically endangered species. And the Gariel Project brings together several universities, international experts, other nonprofits to help learn more about the ecology and behavior and conservation of the gharial in order to help protect them. So once again, on social media, make sure you're following the Gharial Ecology Project to hear updates about what is happening and how, how you can help support this group that works hard to protect the gharials in their native habitat. And I also big shout out to a lot of the zoos that Chris and I mentioned earlier that are helping conserve the gharial under human care through SSP and making sure to keep our captive population numbers up in order to help in- increase breeding and uh, keeping the species alive and hopefully getting them back out into the wild. Yeah, and genetically diverse. I mean, that's a big piece of it too. It's not just, oh, I got a few. It's, okay, this one's overrepresented the population. We need to breed it with this one. That way the genetics are robust. So when they are rewild or reintroduced like we're doing now, they can survive and thrive. So that's, that's the goal. Just some conservation tips for this week. Freshwater, this is an issue around the world. It doesn't matter where you live. I know it's here in New Zealand, there in Florida, to our listeners in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, South America, wherever you are. Think about your freshwater systems, how you can help them. We always talk way back when of, I'm I'm very much in the habit of when I'm brushing my teeth, the sink is off. I've established that habit now. It's not, I don't even think about it. You know, I wet my toothbrush, my sink's off. I I used to maybe let it run back in the day. No, water's off. When I'm shaving, I'm very, I turn it off and on. Just think about that, how you're using water, you know, showers, baths, all that stuff. Just take shorter showers if you can. I'll leave that up to you. But things about like, don't flush things down your, your toilets, you know, don't use them as waste baskets because that goes and flushes out into river systems. Use, you know, your your 
garbage disposals, if you have those wherever you are, those are the things that you know crunch up all your food and stuff. That gets washed into freshwater systems. All those particles go out in wastewater. Compost, you know, here in New Zealand, we're, we're as green as we can be. We have a compost bin. All of our food waste goes in there. And this was surprising. I remember sending this to you or telling you this way back when, Angie. Opt for your dishwashers if you have them over hand washing your dishes. Hand washing actually takes more water or just think about it when you're washing, you know, turn it off and on, off and on. Just be very, you know, we, we need to protect our fresh waters and things like never wash down medicines or things like that down your sinks. But we, we need to protect our fresh waters for the gharials and for all the species and the freshwater fish and all the organisms that live in them in our river streams and lakes and everything because they need it. They need it. Absolutely, Chris. Well said. All right. Well, with that, thank you for listening this week. Another awesome species. I think we're on a good roll. I'm so fun. I'm I'm, all like hyped up. I just love it. Well, next week's species is, oh my God, just gives me smiles thinking about it. So I'm very excited about it. Again, uh, check us out on Instagram, All Creatures Podcast. Give us a follow, please. Join our Facebook group, All Creatures Group. If you can, leave us an iTunes review. Check us out on Patreon. But thank you so much for listening and caring. Yes. Thank you, everyone. Stay curious. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot code SUPER24. Are you looking for a podcast your whole family can enjoy together? Uh-huh. Check out Culture Kids Podcast. Our adventures will ignite your curiosity for culture, traditions, languages, geography, and even pop culture with interviews from guests all over the world. Through each episode, we aim to help children become empathetic, creative leaders in their communities and help them see the beauty in our differences. And that's Culture Kids Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.